Charles grew up participating in many athletic activities like team sports, and things seemed to be going well. Unfortunately, they were diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis, which is a form of arthritis that mainly affects the spine. So it can cause a lot of pain and even loss of mobility. In other words, Charles wasn't able to lead a normal life and forced to apply for disability benefits. Now, as some of you may know, disability benefits, at least in the U.S., might not be able to cover a lot. So Charles struggled with housing options, and they were faced with a choice, buy a home or face homelessness. It's odd that like making this huge investment in buying a house is an easier answer than waiting up to 10 years for what used to be called Section 8 housing, which is substandard anyway. Crazy, right? Buying a house was the easier answer. The good news is that Charis is coming on almost one year of homeownership. But what barriers did they face and how were they able to afford a home despite so many barriers and systems put up for people like them. Welcome to Beyond the Dollar with me, Sarah Lee Kane, a show where we have deep and honest conversations about how money affects our well-being. Today I chat with Charis Hill, who is a professionally disabled writer, speaker, and model living with ankylosing spondylitis, major depressive disorder, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. We talk about how they have to rely on food stamps and Medicare while living on $12,000 a year, why they had to do things like keep cash on hand when going through the home buying process, and why Charles feels lucky despite the many systemic barriers stacked against them. Stick around to the end of the episode where I'll distill some takeaways, including some insights into the housing situation for lower income residents in the US. To find resources shared in this episode, head over to beyondthedollar.co. All right, get ready. And let's go beyond the dollar. Charis, welcome to Beyond the Dollar. Really excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. So let's start by talking about your home buying journey. And by that, I really want to talk about the context in terms of how you're able to to afford the down payment and all of that. Sure. So a little background story about me. I was diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis in 2013. And more current terminology is axial spondyloarthritis. It's a mouthful either way you say it. And within three years, I realized that I could no longer work and made the really hard decision to apply for social security disability or SSDI. And It took two and a half years fighting that, appealing. I was denied twice before I reached an actual in-person hearing with a judge. And I was one of the lucky ones who got disability. In the meantime, like in this two years period, one of my best friends died. My dad died. My grandfather died. So I had a lot of grief in addition to fighting for disability. The reason I share that is because when my dad died, he had a little bit of money left over that I inherited. And that's what helped keep me alive. Like that's my, that was my financial survival until I was awarded disability because you're not really technically supposed to work while you're waiting for disability because then the Social Security Administration can claim that you're able to work even if you're trying to work 10 hours a week. So I didn't have a lot of options. 
immediately after I got my first disability payment, it came with two years of back pay for the two years that it had taken me to apply. And so I was able to use that money, some of the money from my dad's inheritance to have a down payment basically for a house. But that was the easiest of my troubles, honestly. What do you mean by this was the easiest of your troubles? Like what were the, I guess, more difficult parts of this story? Sure. Yeah. So I'm a really frugal person. I I was able to save a significant amount of money right out of college working a job that paid like $24,000 a year. And for a lot of people, that's not a lot of money. For me, it felt like a lot. Now I make half of that. And being someone living in poverty, I call myself impoverished because I feel like it's something that has been done to me. It's really hard to jump through all the hoops. There are a ton of loopholes when it comes to welfare programs. I rely on food stamps. I rely on Medicaid, which is a state program. It's federally funded partially. And I also rely on Medicare. And for these programs, there are rules around how much money you're allowed to have. And once you reach sort of that benefit cliff or that asset limit, your benefits get cut significantly. So for me, even having the down payment amount, even having that money in the bank put me at risk of losing healthcare or food. <laughs> and so there was this timeline where I had to find a way to have permanent housing in before, if you will, the benefits police came to check on how much money I had in the bank. And so there was this like, I was forced to hide the amount of money I had in order to get permanent housing. I also didn't have a lot of support from family when it came to trying to buy the house. So I saw it like, you know, having a co-signer, asking my mother to co-sign for me. She didn't want to do that. So I was stuck living in poverty on under $12,000 a year and knowing that buying a house was my only way out of the possibility that I would become homeless. And it's odd that like making this huge investment in buying a house is an easier answer than waiting up to 10 years for what used to be called Section 8 housing, which is substandard anyway. Wow. Like I don't even, I don't even know where to go. There's so many directions we can go with that right. because so I, and then we were talking about this before the recording is that for many people like housing or paying for mortgages, like this almost this burden because there's a lot of articles out there and sort of, you know, even in newspapers and blogs and things like that about like, oh, housing is like 50% of people's income and, you know, you want to reduce that. And, and so there's all this anti homeownership writing, which I'm not saying it's wrong, but then there's also this other perspective which you're providing is like, well, I need some place to live. And but I've all these other sort of like, I guess my question is too, is what type of mortgage were you able to qualify for given your situation? I got really lucky, actually. I got a conventional loan. I thought my only option would Mm. be an FHA loan. And I was ready to settle with that. You know, it was I was willing to do whatever it took to get in a home because the programs out there that are, you know, touted to help poor people just simply aren't, they don't help enough people. A very small number of sort of public or subsidized housing options are accessible for disabled people. And I am disabled. I do need accessible housing. 
and of those programs that do exist, it's a three to five year wait list for a lot of subsidized programs. And for the Housing Choice Voucher Program, which is what used to be Section 8, that's a 10 year wait in some cities just to get on the wait list to get a voucher. And even if you get a voucher, there's not much chance that you're going to find an apartment or something that works for you. Like, do you have an opinion on the reasons why it's such a long wait list? Is it because funding stretched too thin? Is it how, like, do you feel like housing costs have just gone up? Like, like, I guess, do you have some insight into that? Yeah, I think it's a combination of that. I think everyone can agree that rental prices are rising, like almost skyrocketing across the country, especially in cities where, for me, you know, healthcare is important and I kind of need to live near a city where healthcare is accessible. And there's just a lot of funding has been cut for sort of public assistance or subsidized housing. And on top of that, a lot of people who own the buildings that people can rent through public assistance, they don't take care of them. So it's it's not just finding the housing, but it's also realizing that the housing you may get will be probably not up to code. A lot of people I know who are disabled who have access to public housing have run into issues with mold and unsafe environmental concerns other than that. I never saw myself becoming a homeowner. I always thought I was going to be what I like to call a stable nomad. Like I, I moved to a city for a while, established myself for, you know, five or 10 years and then move on. And there was no need to buy a house. I loved, you know, experiencing new places. But when my health changed, everything else changed and my relationship to what my future looked like or should look like and what control I had on it had to change. And so a house, a house became my only option for a stable future, really. So I'm curious when you got the diagnosis or when you find out that you weren't able to be a stable nomad as you like it, what was going through your head and how did you at least come to terms with it? I'm not saying you like accept it, but like come to terms with it. So my father, growing up, I knew my father had this disease that had made his back curve forward. He was a hunchback. And we were estranged. I would see him once a year. And I knew he had this disease. I couldn't remember the name of it. But I knew that I wouldn't get it because I was a girl. That was what I was told. That was what doctors told my parents. And so for the first 20 years or so of my life, I just, you know, I lived knowing that nothing was going to happen to my health. That would be fine. So I grew up running. I grew up playing soccer, playing any sport I could get my hands on or my feet, since soccer is feet. And then when my health changed, my when I was diagnosed, everything just flipped upside down. My whole identity was centered in athleticism, and suddenly I couldn't do that anymore. And so I went through a period of extreme depression for several years, and then I found writing. So writing sort of became my passion and in a way replaced what I'd lost with my athleticism. And I'm glad that I've sort of come out of that depression and found a way to be me again. I love that. So out of curiosity, is do you earn some money from writing or is that just still a a passion or hobby? Yes and yes. Okay. <laughs> I, I really love writing on my blog. <laughs> my favorite piece is writing on my blog, but I also 
it's also really important to me to write on bigger platforms. Mm. Like I have a recent article on Business Insider about buying my house. And I believe that's how you and I connected. I do make money writing, but I'm limited in how much I'm able to earn as someone receiving social security disability. For example, if I make over a certain amount in one month, I'm supposed to report that income to the Social Security Administration. And if I make too much, then they'll lower my benefits. And yeah, I think you mentioned earlier that these programs are meant to sort of help people get out of poverty, this sort of tapering of benefits as you earn money. But it actually, for a lot of us, it serves to do the opposite. For me, having over $2,000 in the bank, which I can imagine your listeners are thinking, okay, this person owns a home and all they have in the bank or all they're allowed to have is $2,000. That's not a good cushion. But if I have over $2,000, then suddenly my Medicaid coverage is cut and I have to pay for it out of pocket, which ends up being almost all of the income I receive. So there's no incentive for me to actually earn more money if I'm going to lose an equal amount of benefits and not actually have an opportunity to sort of raise myself up, pick myself up by my bootstraps. Because if, as soon as I am, then I'm penalized. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that because that's something that I'm personally curious about. And I know I'm going to make the assumption a lot of you guys listeners may not have known this because I was I was actually going to wanted to circle back on the the idea of the benefits police. Like you had this amount for down payment. If you, I, I'm assuming you had over two thousand dollars for a down payment because that would have been you would have had to essentially basically say this is how much I have, right? So in terms of that, was there like a timeline of when you had to close on the home before you had to record or not record? Sorry, essentially tell them the amount of money that you had in the bank account. No, I was basically playing with fire. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> benefits programs like food stamps and Medicaid, like those are the two that I have to sort of report income to regularly. It's something like every six months that I have to report income to for food stamps and maybe once a year for Medicaid. And I think most people know that you never know how long it's going to take to buy a house. and. I was just gambling. That was my only option. I don't like admitting this on air and I'm fine saying it, but I realized that I could be putting myself in danger by saying that I had cash in my home. I did not deposit all of my money because I didn't want to be penalized for having money and trying to help myself in the future by buying a home and having stability. And I know a lot of people in my situation who do keep cash in their homes because that's really the only way they can survive. Right. Because you can't or not. Yeah. You can't really trace cash if you're physically hoarding it. But I mean, that comes, I guess, with its own set of challenges too, because if you know, I don't want to wishes on anyone, but if someone were to come in and take it, then there's no way of getting that back either. Right. Yeah. I was constantly aware that I had this significant amount of cash in my home. Sure, it was in a safe, if you will, but that doesn't prevent fire from damaging it. If someone wants to take that safe, it's only you know a 20-pound safe. Someone can carry it out and figure a way to open it. Mm -hmm. And on top of all that, anyone who's poor is prevented from gaining interest 
from all of that, say if you had it in a savings account. So there are a number of ways that the benefits cliff, which is what the, if you will, the benefits police is, really does not help people get out of poverty. It, it keeps us there. Before we move on, I guess, to the home buying process, like what do you, what would you say? If someone were to come be like, hey, I'm going to make changes to social security benefits and Medicaid and all that based on your insight, what would you say to them? I would say it's about time. <laughs> <laughs> well, in all seriousness, I would say, okay, invite people like me to the table as you discuss what changes you're making. Because really, I believe that people who are actually experiencing what the policies do are the people who can help educate policymakers. And I completely believe that people who are living in poverty should be at the table when policies are being discussed that impact disabled people, poor people, people who are trying to, you know, get out of the lower 50% or whatever that percentages of people who are moving out of the middle class and into the lower class and into poverty. Yeah, that's a great answer. And if there's listeners, if there's any resources that I have, I will link to something in the show notes where if you want to contact your local politicians and things like that, hopefully there's something that you know all of us can do. So thank you for sharing that. So let's pivot back to the home buying process. So you got your conventional loan and you're you sign, you know, on the dotted line, you've closed on the home. Like, how did that feel? I, it took a long time before I really believed that it was real and it wasn't, it wasn't a dream. I remember sort of posting. So January, I want to say January 21st or 23rd of 2019 is when I found the house online and my realtor who is also someone living with a chronic disease. We have the same disease and she knew she knew she wasn't going to make any money off helping me, but she did it anyway. We wrote an offer on that house or the house I'm in now at like 11 o'clock at night. And I made a post the next morning on Facebook with my hand held over my mouth and tears running down my face. I shared that picture and wrote what was happening and Within, you know, 24 hours, like 250 people would like to post because they knew how important this was to me. And that's when it felt real that it was happening. But then I had another, what, 21 more days before closing. And it was clear within two weeks that it was going to happen. But I think I lived in shock for the first couple months until I was actually living here. But I don't think it's going to feel real, honestly, Sarah, until... $50,000 worth of repairs are done. (laughs) I mean, it's literally falling apart. I, the only house I could afford is in really bad shape. It's, it was built in 1940 and the, I was showering outside in my backyard with a solar shower for the whole summer because my inside shower wasn't working properly. And even beyond that, I would shower outside because I didn't have a working vent fan and I believe I have moisture issues in the house. So there's a lot of work. I mean, I'm coming up a year of having the house, but that doesn't mean I feel settled. I'm literally living in a house that is in a constant state of renovation and I'm limited in how much money I can save in order to do those repairs because as we said before, I have asset limits. Right. So 
Now, in terms of finding this home, like how long, how long did it take for you to find this property and realize, okay, I mean, and and I, there's two parts, I guess, to my question is how long did it take? And number two, were you looking at other homes or was this kind of the only one? Because like you said, this was the only one that you could afford. I laugh all the time when people come over and they're like, so how'd you pick this neighborhood? I'm like, you don't know what poverty is, do you? Because people who are living in poverty like me, at the level of poverty that I am living in, we don't have a choice when it comes to the neighborhoods we live in or the houses we pick. I got really, really lucky that this house has wood floors, which was on my list of wants. But I knew that my want list would not be the reason I would choose a house. No, I didn't look at any other houses and I made an offer on this house without even looking at it. So I bought it sort of at the tail end as the market was still rising, but it was on the brink of kind of settling back into an average. And I knew that if I didn't act on the first house that I qualified for, I wasn't going to get a house. Overall, so getting a loan took forever because I had so many barriers Mm -hmm. to get over. I have amazing credit. So that was one thing going for me. I had a very big down payment for my situation. And I had good, you know, financial records showing my ability to take care of things. Mm -hmm. But still living on $12,000 or less a year doesn't give you many options for housing, especially in Sacramento, California, where a lot of people from the Bay Area, San Francisco, are moving into Sacramento and sort of treating it like a suburb. So within, I want to say it was less than a month after I got or maybe it was less than two weeks after my loan was approved that I was working on buying this house. And it happened very much by surprise. I thought I would only qualify for a condo, but it ended up that condo, I didn't qualify for a condo because of the HOA fees. And I knew that there would be no house on the market that I would qualify for because I think I was given a loan amount of a hundred and fifty thousand dollars or less and so for the first time in you know that nearly a decade i'm able to live in a home that i know that i own my costs are never going to go up as far as rent because i have a, a fixed mortgage and i'm able to spend like i can buy a plant if i go to trader joe's and i see a plant that i want i can buy it and not feel guilty even if it's five dollars even if it's a pack of gum these like these are tiny expenses to a lot of people, but for someone like me who has fought so hard to find a place of stability, just being able to support myself and knowing that I will have money to spare feels really good. It feels like I'm able to, let me rephrase all that. So a lot of people say that money can't buy you happiness, but for me, money has allowed me room to find happiness. Having stability has allowed me to not have to think about money as much because I know that I'm not in danger of being homeless. That's a big deal. (laughs) Waking up in my home every morning and looking in my backyard and knowing that I'll never have to leave it and that it's always going to be there for me and that my cats will always be fed, that I can paint my walls whatever color I want. That span of like the big things and the small things mean a huge deal to me. And I'm able to take care of myself now. Well, 
gosh, that was beautiful. I'm like, I, yeah, that was beautiful. So thank you so much for putting that into such eloquent words. Again, Charles, thank you so much for coming on Beyond the Dollar. You're welcome. All right, so before we distill some takeaways from Charles's conversation, I just want to thank my friend Bryn from Personal Finance for Women for connecting us to. Bryn is doing some really important work for women in the personal finance space, so please check her out. I'll put a link in the show notes, beyondthedollar.co slash 66. Okay, so let's talk about Charis and their housing situation. So there's just like a lot of un- to unpack. And I will be talking about some statistics and things like that as from as many reputable sources as I can. Again, I'll link to those in the show notes, beyondthedollar.co slash 66. If you're listening to this like years later and the numbers aren't necessarily accurate or the same, please know that I am just trying to quote from what I can. Now, in terms of social security disability benefits in the US, there is a limitation in terms of how much someone can earn before their benefits go away. I don't necessarily blame Charles for being a little bit stressed or trying to straddle that line. And I'm not saying that to criticize. It's really one of those, I'm sure that the system was really set up to try to make sure that the money would go towards people who genuinely deserved it. Now, to be eligible for disability benefits, someone, and if you're wanting to earn money, you need to be making less than or equal to 1,220 US dollars per month. If you're blind, the limit actually goes up to $2,040. This amount is adjusted every year, I think, based on inflation, and the official term for this is called substantial gainful activity. So whatever you qualify for disability benefits, then you can make an additional $1,200 or so, or or however much. Now, if you're in the US, $1,220 isn't a lot of money, especially on the West Coast where Charis is based. And so I can feel the frustration. I mean, I unfortunately cannot understand it, but I can definitely feel that frustration. So Now, I want to break down a little bit about FHA loans and the conventional loans and why that's so significant for Charis. FHA loans are technically insured by a government entity, basically the Federal Housing Administration. Okay, so in a sense, the government's backing that home loan and a conventional loan aren't insured by federal agencies. So they're from uh, mostly private companies. So both these loans have their advantages. Now, FHA loans usually are for people with lower credit scores. So think about 580, which isn't great in the world of credit scores. And so it also has a lower down payment. And so that was probably why Charles thought that they were going to be able to qualify for that simply because maybe they didn't have enough of a down payment. Conventional loans are typically for people with higher credit scores and you do need to put in a higher down payment. So most people recommend 20% of the home purchase price. You can go a little bit lower. It really depends on the lender. One of the reasons that FHA loans can be a little bit of a disadvantage is that it has a lot more stricter property standards. So it does have to go through some guidelines that the FHA imposes. Also, you have to pay mortgage insurance throughout the entire lifetime of the loan. So mortgage insurance is basically insurance that you pay in case you default on the loan, right? In case you cannot pay the loan. And so it's technically insurance you're paying so that the lender is insured in case you don't pay the loan. So it's really not necessarily benefiting 
you per se as the home buyer. For conventional loans, you may have to pay mortgage insurance, but that can go away once you have about 20% equity in the house. So it could be like you put 20% down on the, when you purchase it, you don't have to pay insurance. Or when you pay enough on the, the principal balance on your loan, such that the, you now own, you know, quote unquote, 20% of your home. So it's, I know it's confusing, but I think if you are deciding whether or not to buy a home, these are the considerations really someone needs to think about. And so whatever situation you find yourself in, there are tons of first time home buyer classes. You can certainly look online at some reputable websites. I'll link to a couple of those and just ask as many questions as you need. Because now I'm going to make the assumption it just sounded like Charis did quite a bit of homework in terms of what it would take to buy a home. You're thinking, oh my gosh, if someone's on disability, they can only make so much. They can't have a certain amount of money in their bank account. Like, How are they going to try to get out of that poverty cycle? There's no easy answer. And I'm not even going to try to answer that question because the simple answer is I don't know. And it really depends on your situation. I hope some of this gives you an insight into what some people may face in the U.S. And it has certainly given me a lot to think about. I mean, even if you can, quote unquote, afford a home, right, there's, again, tons of factors to consider. So please make sure you look through all your options. And I want to hear from you. Please let me know what you thought of this episode or any stories you want to share about your money stuff. Hello at beyondthedollar.co. Next week's episode features Michelle from the website Savvy History, and she's going to come on to talk about her creative career and how her husband had this really long winding journey into how they navigated sort of the expectations between their families and what they wanted. So really looking forward to releasing that episode. All right. Until next time, everyone. Thank you so much for listening in on Beyond the Dollar. If you like what you heard, please share with a friend. It'll help share the mission of what we're trying to do, which is to have more deep and honest conversations about how money affects our well-being. So tag them on Instagram when I post Beyond the Dollar or send them a link. Whatever you want to do to spread the mission of what we're doing around here. Now, if you feel that putting money towards the things that really matter is a challenge for you, feel free to download the Value Space Spending Guide. So what it is, is you're going to be able to gain clarity around what matters most to you in life, be able to name your most important values and how we can start putting money towards those things. So to download the values-based spending guide, go to beyondthedollar.co slash values. So thank you again for listening and I'll catch you on the next episode of Beyond the Dollar. By the way, thank you to Donovan Durant again for providing this awesome theme song.